If you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. I want to pick up our reading in chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and verse 40. Acts 2, and beginning with verse 40, and I want to read all the way to the end of the chapter. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate bread from house to house, Excuse me, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do indeed thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the grace that has made us to differ from our neighbors. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his word, and we bless you and thank you for the Holy Spirit of Christ. And so now as we come to this, your word, we pray you, our beloved Father, that you would, for the sake of Christ and by the powerful and efficacious ministry of the Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe, give us hands and feet to obey. Grant it, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's my hope today to preach through this whole passage. I want to actually divide it up into half uh, and preach the first half into two halves and preach the first half this morning and then, God willing, the second half this evening. But before we do that, I want to start by way of introduction First of all, suggesting a few things about the book itself, and then secondly, about the second chapter. Now, with reference to the book of Acts, I think most of you are familiar that it's commonly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. It largely describes the greater uh, and continuous labors that Christ promised the apostles would do. Perhaps a fuller title might be the continuing or greater works of Christ by his spirit in and through his apostles. But if you prefer that larger, uh, perhaps more difficult title or the smaller one, the Acts of the Apostles, I want to suggest this morning, brethren, that it's important to retain the word apostles. And I say that because some things in the book are unique to the apostles and are not intended to be duplicated in every age. Personally, I think this might be why at times the book is 
overemphasized by some sincere Christians because they want to duplicate every practice they find in every passage throughout the book and possibly also underemphasized by other dear brethren because they don't know how to make sense of these unique aspects of the book. Just remember it's the Acts of the Apostles and thus it starts with the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to the Apostles and it ends with Paul, the last Apostle in prison in Rome. It is, brethren, the continuing or greater works of Christ by his Spirit in and through his apostles. Now that brings me then very quickly to say something about the second chapter. You probably know that it can be divided into three parts. In verses 1 to 13, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. If remember, Christ had commissioned the disciples to go to Jerusalem and there wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit that he promised he would send. And then beginning at verse 14, all the way to 39, you have Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he first interprets that event, the giving of the Holy Spirit, with that quotation from Joel 2. And then he gives a tremendous exposition of the person and work of Christ, largely quoting from the Old Testament three times, including that quotation from Joel, twice from the Psalms. And then he alludes to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And then, our passage for the day, verse 40 to 47, you have what happens following that sermon. And verses 40 to 41 describes what happened immediately after that sermon on the same day. And then, as we'll see here in a moment, verses 42 and following, what happened after that day. Now, I've said already that I hope to come to verses 40 to 47 today, and I want to divide it up into two parts. We want to come, God willing, this morning to verses 40 to 43, and then this evening, 44 to 47. Now, let me just say one last thing by way of introduction, and then we'll come to verse 40. There is a sense in which we find that Luke here describes what the early church did both publicly and privately. Now, we're going to see publicly this morning. That's largely found there in 42, though I want to dip down into 43. And then, as I've said tonight, we'll come back to verses 44 to 47 and see what the early church did privately. So we have here a beautiful description, and that is our title to both messages. It's a very uh, creative uh, outline that I have with reference to the two sermons. We have, first of all, the description of the early church, part one. And then this evening, a description of the early church, part two. Just keep in mind that I think, and I'll try to argue for this here in a moment, well, really throughout the whole day, but just keep in mind that largely speaking, Luke does describe what the early church did collectively on the Lord's Day, and then also what they did 
privately as families and as a church throughout the week. And that's going to be, God willing, our theme this morning. All right, so we come now to verses 40 to 43. And I want to suggest three things within this passage. We have, first of all, the entrance into the church. That's verses 40 and 41. The activities of the church, 42. And then the attitude of the church, 43. Or to put it perhaps more concisely, we'll see, first of all, its entrance, its activities, and its attitude. That is the early church. How was it that these people entered the church? Well, Luke tells us in verses 40 and 41. What did they do within the church? Well, he tells us in verse 42. And what was the disposition or the attitude with which they did those activities? Well, he tells us in verse 43, all right? So notice, first of all, then, its entrance. Now, in considering the entrance into the church, I want to point out two things in verses 40 and 41. In verse 40, we have an earnest exhortation. And then in verse 41, a joyful reception. Notice first, verse 40, an earnest exhortation. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I take these words to basically mean the sermon recorded in the previous verses, verses 14 to 39, wasn't all that Peter said on that day. But with many additional words, he continued to testify about the truth of the gospel and exhort them to be saved. So he continually testified and exhorted them. And let's look at those in turn. First, he testified about the truth of the gospel. And with many other words, he testified. Now, the Greek word that's translated, he testified, literally means to earnestly or solemnly testify. He earnestly testified about the truths of the gospel. He earnestly bore witness to the truths about Christ. And again, if we were to go back into that sermon that Peter preached, beginning at verse 14 to 39... We would find that he testified about the life of Christ, verse 22, the death of Christ, verse 23, the resurrection of Christ, verses 24 to 32, and the exaltation of Christ, verses 33 to 36. And he did this fundamentally two ways. He earnestly, solemnly testified about the person and work of Christ, first by appealing to Old Testament prophecies. And I've already said that the backbone of the sermon consists of three Old Testament quotations from Joel 2, Psalm 16, and then towards the end, Psalm 110, and then he alluded to the Davidic covenant uh, as you find it back in 2 Samuel 7. He does that in verse 30. So he testifies about Christ about the person and the work of Christ. First, by appealing to Old Testament texts. And then secondly, also, he testified with reference to his own personal witness. 
Peter was an eyewitness to these events. And you know that the book of Acts places stress upon the need to be an apostle. Because if you remember, back in the first chapter, when they were seeking a replacement uh, for Judas, one of the qualifications of being an apostle was that you had to have been a witness. And what was it that you had to witness? Well, everything Peter just testified of. You had to be a witness of Jesus' ministry. You had to be a witness of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So we find that Peter is earnestly testifying. He's ongoingly, continually testifying of the person and work of Christ in those two ways. Through the Old Testament scriptures and as an apostle, his own personal experience. And so with reference to us today, we too are to testify of the same two things, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. We still have not our own personal witness. None of us saw the personal ministry of Christ or the crucifixion or the resurrection or the ascension. And brethren, if anybody ever claimed to have witnessed that personally, they're a liar. But we still have apostolic witness. And that, of course, is found in the scriptures. And so we too are to testify, as Peter did, both with reference to the person and the work of Christ. As we set out before people the Old Testament prophecies or the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. John Stott, the commentator, put it like this. Our responsibility is to preach the authentic Christ of the Old and New Testament scriptures. The primary witness to him are the prophets and the apostles. Ours is always secondary to theirs. So yes, we are to enlist our own experience because we find that Paul does that on three occasions. But the primary witness is to be to the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament, uh, yeah, prophets in the New Testament, apostles. And then notice he exhorted them to be saved. And with many other words, he exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now you might know if you have the NASB that it renders the phrase, he kept on exhorting them to underscore its continual and repetitious nature. In fact, the word translated, exhorted, refers literally to an urgent call or summons. And thus the NIV, he pleaded with them. By generation as men, I, I take it to mean that present generation. It was perverse, it was evil. If you remember, the Jews crucified their Messiah through the lawless hands of the Romans. Thus, by being saved from that generation is meant, come out from it and align yourself with Christ. Now, brethren, it's possible that Peter has some notion of that destruction of Jerusalem that was coming, but for mostly he's thinking about that destruction that would come upon them when they died, as they would enter into hell, and there would be in prison, awaiting the resurrection and the judgment to come. So he's urging them. He's pleading with them. 
continuously that they would be saved from that evil, crooked, and perverse generation, that they would come out from it and align themselves with Christ and his people, and in so doing, they would be saved from the judgment that would fall upon that generation. As I've said, that generation died, and it entered into the pains of hell, and it presently is in prison, awaiting the resurrection and judgment. But here's the point. Brethren, every generation is a perverse generation. And thus, every generation is a generation from which we all need to be saved. Think of these familiar words in the first chapter of Galatians, verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Notice why. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. It is true. Some ages or generations might be more perverse than others. This generation that we live in is, in some sense, perhaps more perverse than previous generations. But brethren, this world has always been post-fall and will always be a perverse generation. There will never be an age that's not perverse. And the reason being is Satan is at present the God, little g, of this age. Thus we learn that sinners must be saved from their sins, to put it very plainly. Because it's sin that's causing the righteous judgment of God. And so Peter, he testifies he ongoingly and continually testifies to Christ and he urges his hearers to be saved from this present evil age. Preaching includes the gospel, obviously. But to be faithful preaching, there has to be the urging, the urging that sinners would close with Christ and be saved from their sin. A joyful reception, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Notice, first of all, the nature of their reception. Then secondly, the result. The nature. Then those who gladly received the word. There's some uncertainty about the word gladly if you have a new King James. Thus, it's omitted by some of your translations. But regardless if it's original to the text or not, it's implied. And that might be why it found its way into the text. As the Greek word translated received literally means to receive gladly. Thus, they receive the word with joy and gladness. They receive the word as a message, brethren, of good news. Surely there was bad news. You need to be saved from this generation. Why? Because of your sins and the righteous judgments of God. 
but there was good news. And they gladly, wholeheartedly received that word. They received it as a message of good news. They welcomed the word of the gospel. They received or accepted it with an eager heart. And so the imagery is they received the word of God as if they embraced it with both hands of the heart. When, the, when my children were younger, this was one way I oftentimes helped or sought to help them to understand the nature of saving faith. I would tell them that you have to come to Christ. And they would say, well, where's Christ? I say, well, he's bodily in heaven, but he's everywhere present. And then they might ask, well, how do I lay hold of him? Well, you lay hold of him with both hands of the heart. This is really a beautiful imagery to underscore the nature of saving faith. You embrace the truth about Christ with both hands of the heart or the soul. But to be more precise, it's not merely that you embrace truths about Christ, but you actually embrace Christ himself. And thus think of John, the words of John in John 1 and 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You can see how John equates the, recep the reception of Christ with believing on Christ. Thus to receive the word of Christ is one and the same as receiving Christ himself. It's believing upon Christ. But even perhaps to be more specific, to properly embrace Christ is to embrace the whole Christ with the whole soul. And that's why I said you have to receive him or embrace him with both hands. The whole Christ. That is, we embrace him as a prophet to teach us a priest to save and intercede for us, and a king to rule us. Those who truly receive Christ with both hands of the heart receive the whole Christ. They've come to see their need of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Oh, their grip on Christ might vary in terms of strong and weak faith. Remember, brethren, it's not strong faith that saves, it's faith that saves because faith in itself doesn't save. It's Christ who saves. And so a weak faith, a strong faith, perhaps we can say some people come to Christ with both hands and they lay hold of him like this. Others perhaps get the edges of his garment. But either way, the virtue lies not in the faith, it lies in the object, and that is Christ himself, the whole soul. That is, we embrace him with our understanding, our affections, and will. Our whole soul, all of the faculties are engaged. Brother, if you stop and think, this simple um, way of describing faith keeps us from all manner of errors. Some people believe that you could become a Christian and have him as your Savior, but not as your Lord. Some people believe that in saving faith, you just have to believe some facts 
and you become a Christian. No, this remedies all that, doesn't it? My friends, saving faith is nothing less than the whole soul embracing ever so feebly the whole Christ. The result of the reception. We find there's two closely related results of the reception. They were baptized and then added to the church. They were baptized in water as an open expression that they've received the word of the gospel or they've received Christ. Water baptism is the open acknowledgement that a sinner has received the word. It's an open testimony or proclamation that we have with both hands. Again, albeit feebly, but we've laid hold of the whole Christ. And thus in water baptism, yes, Christ speaks to us in in baptism. He promises us all kinds of things. He says basically, in essence, he's ours. And all that he has. But brethren, in baptism, we also say we're his with reference to all that we have. My beloved is mine, and I'm his. That's the testimony of the Sholomite in Song of Solomon 2 and 16. And brethren, that's the testimony of every baptized person. And then we find that they were added to the church, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This simply means those who've been baptized are then added to the church. They become members. And thus, notice Luke provides a general number. This implies a list of sorts to keep names. In other words, the church in Jerusalem was able to identify who was and who was not a member of the church. And let me just say in passing, as our brother mentioned in the Sunday school class, this text indicates that Only believers, those who've repented, if you remember back in verse 38, or those who've believed, because remember, you can't repent without believing, you can't believe without repenting. Those are two sides of one coin. As Pastor Sam used to say, they're Siamese twins, and when the one comes into the heart, the other's there. And so it's those who've repented and believed who ought to be baptized and thus added to the church. And my brethren, nobody save those who've repented and believed. Now, I don't know the makeup of the congregation, but we happen to have typically half a dozen Presbyterian families that worship with us, and several of them are are members. They can't be officers, but they can be members in our congregation. So... On occasion, I might just take liberty to point that out, but I suspect probably most of us are in agreement. Believers and only believers ought to be baptized and added to the church. But friends, may I say it this way? Believers, and thus believers, ought to be baptized. Believers ought to be baptized and added to the church. My friend, if you're a believer... 
If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you've received Christ with both hands, then you ought to be baptized and added to the church. That's the entrance into the early church. Notice the activities of it, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Here we learn what these new believers, these freshly baptized believers did. This is what they gave priority to. And they, that is the newly enlarged church, continued steadfastly in four important activities. But before I come to those activities in turn, I want to say something very quickly about the two words, continued steadfastly. Continued, this word refers to a continued or constant action, something that's repeated regularly. Steadfastly. To be steadfast is to be committed to something. Thus, the Nazbi, they were continually devoting themselves. This means the four things mentioned were activities the church were committed to. They were a priority to the church. These are the things the newly enlarged congregation in Jerusalem did on a regular basis. Week in, week out, over and over and over again. Now, brother and I put it like that because many Christians start well, but after a while they grow tired of the same old, same old. But you know, life within the church is similar to life outside the church. And I think that's why Luke kind of connects both of them in this larger passage. Life is repetitious. Most of us get up on Monday, we do the same things. We go to work, we go to school, we come back, we eat supper, we have devotions, we go to bed. We do the same thing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday we might add in mow the lawn. Sunday we go to church. The tragedy is that sometimes Christian people are always living for the exception. Kind of like the person that lives for the vacation. And, and, and brother and I love vocations. And, and I love to look, and I look for them. I anticipate them. But life isn't that ordinarily. Ordinarily, it's not the exception. It's the regular. It's the mundane. And I think we have to embrace it. And as we learned in the Sunday school hour, improve upon that mundane life and use those regular things as means to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, it's the same in the church, right? Isn't it tragic, brethren, how many Christians start off well and then they get tired of the same old? We want something different. But the early church was devoted ongoingly and continuously to the regular, if I can use the word, mundane things mentioned in verse 42. Apostolic doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that is, in the teaching of the apostles. This is obviously a very important part of church life, sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the holy and sacred scriptures. Now, as I've said before, obviously we no longer have apostles, but that doesn't mean we no longer have the apostles' doctrine. 
We have the doctrine or the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament scriptures, and we have that which they expounded in the Old Testament scriptures. Luke puts this first because of importance. They continued steadfastly in the teaching and the preaching of the word. This is what this church in Jerusalem was about. We're going to see they were about other things, but this was first on the list. What was the big gun, if you will, that marked out this particular church? Well, we find that the church committed itself in the very first place to the apostolic doctrine. Again, listen to John Stott. One might say the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. There were 3,000 new students who enrolled in the church. Remember what Jesus told us in the Great Commission, go into the world, make disciples, gather them into the church through water baptism, and then what? Teach them everything I've taught you. Christian fellowship, they continue steadfastly in fellowship. The word, as you likely know, literally means to have in common, to share in common. This includes, as we'll see tonight, possessions, experiences, joys, and sorrows. This is a fundamental reason for the church to gather with God's people who have basic things in common. And so I take fellowship here in a more limited sense to refer to the gatherings, not just the actual worship services, but the fellowship that takes place in the gathered church primarily on the Sabbath. We're going to see that there's fellowship that's to take place through the week as well tonight. But again, I take verse 42 in a more limited sense as the better of the commentators do also. It's possible that we come from different countries, ethnicities, social, educational, and economic classes, but we all have something in common. Let me just quickly uh, give a personal example. I came to this church. Of course, uh, the church was meeting in a different building, but I came to this church back in 1995. And I was riding my bicycle from the city mission where I was converted and at present a resident. And I rode my bicycle a little north of here to that school that the church was meeting in back in 1995. And most of the members back then, at least from my perception, were what we might call white-collar-ish, more educated, intact families, and here I come. Let me just say I was very opposite all that. And I can still remember after the preaching, especially, talking to men and women, but men especially, who had shirts that obviously were pressed uh, through cleaners, dry cleaners. That always used to just, I, I just always was so jealous of that. Now my wife irons my shirt and she does nearly as a good job. <laughs> and a little cheaper. Here are two people talking about the same things with tears in our eyes. 
And brethren, we couldn't have come from two different planets. What is it that brings us together? What is it that unites us? Well, we've all received the word of God gladly. We've all been baptized as an expression of our union with Christ. We all believe the scriptures to be infallible, inerrant, faithful, sufficient, and powerful. We all believe Christ is the God-man Savior who was crucified, resurrected, exalted to the right hand of the Father. We all believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, sustainer and provider of all things. That he's one in three persons. We all believe that this present generation is an evil and perverse generation. We all believe that Christ is coming back. And when he does, he shall usher in the consummation, heaven and hell. Brethren, this is what unites us. Albert Barnes, the old Presbyterian, said, Christians feel that they are a band of brethren and that however much They were separated before they became Christians, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free male, female. Now they have great and important interests in common. They are united in feelings, in interests, in dangers, in conflicts, in opinions, and in the hopes of a blessed immortality. Brother, these are the things that there are. Sometimes it's, I know everybody here knows this. Sometimes it's good to go back, isn't it, and to be reminded of the basics. This is what the early church did. It devoted itself regularly to teaching, to the doctrine, to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Literally, in the breaking of the bread. I take here breaking of the bread as shorthand for the Lord's Supper. For this reason, he says, in the breaking of the bread, and as we'll see tonight, I think he's distinguishing it from something else. Now, some of you know that the early church conflated the supper with a common meal. These were actually formally separated in the early part of the second century. But if you remember, go back in your mind to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is already beginning to separate the two, and in part, that was the problem of the Corinthians. I think that's what Paul fundamentally means when he says that they were not rightly discerning the Lord's body and death. They were conflating the two, that common fellowship meal and the sacred supper. Thus, here in verse 42, Luke refers to the Lord's supper. As we'll see in verse 46, I think he's referring to common meals. Thus, this early church was not only a learning church in that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, a loving church in that they fellowship or commune one with another, but a worshiping church. That is, they devoted themselves to the celebration of remembering the Lord's death at the table. Corporate prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayers. Literally again, the prayers. The article's there. Organized prayer. Calvin said, it's certain that he speaks here of public prayer. And for this cause, it's not sufficient for men to make their prayers at home by themselves unless they meet all together to pray. Now, before I come to verse 43, let me here pause and summarize verse 42 with three short and simple observations. 
Observation number one. Verse 42 provides the priorities of the church. God alone determines the priorities of the church. You and I, that, this is the inference from that. You and I are not left to ourselves to determine what we think the church should and should not be doing. Brother, how liberating is this? <laughs> Certainly it's liberating for the preacher, for the pastors. For the officers, it ought to be liberating for all the members. If I can put it straightforwardly, and I don't mean to be rude or unkind, it doesn't really matter what you think or I think the church should be doing. I understand that there are some particulars here that have to be sorted out within every congregation, but the broad strokes are already there. We're not left up to determine what we think we should do. We're just to do that which God has told us to do. We just had our business meeting not long ago, as I think you did, and we're thankful that we have just a little north of 100 members or so. Are we to just take a vote? The majority wins. What should we do when we gather on the Lord's Day? Well, let's go by the majority, right? Let's go by what we think works. Maybe the experts. I don't know if there's, there's probably not many Christian book uh, stores anymore. I know that Puritan still has theirs up in Grand Rapids. But it used to be when you go to a Christian bookstore, the largest section was how to grow the church. It was always the largest section, how to grow the church. But, and, and some of those books, I'm sure, were good books, and maybe they did underscore these things. But I suggest to you that probably a good majority of those books were not underscoring the priorities that God underscores in the scriptures. We went down to Ohio. We were sent from this church, by this church, down to Ohio in 2003. And basically from then all the way up until five years ago, I met every month with a bunch of local pastors. It kind of fizzled out after a while. And here's the tragedy why it fizzled out. Because many of those churches fizzled out. There were Baptists. I was the only Reformed Baptist. Well, there was a few Baptists. I was there. And then the bulk of them were OPC and PCA. Some of them were just non-denom. And again, I don't mean to, to throw stones, brethren. But some of the churches, and particularly some of the PCA churches, unfortunately, were struggling to keep their membership, struggling to keep the younger generation so they're trying to be creative. And, 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 and I was getting frustrated going to these meetings because we were supposed to go there for a short devotional and prayer, but it turned out, it turned into almost all the time, what are you doing, brother, to keep the young ones? How are you, what new book have you read about three, five, or seven ways to grow the church? Excuse me. Why not just devote ourselves continually to these things? Now, again, you can tweak things and alter things, but within, the, within these categories. And what happened is, in, in some cases, unfortunately, again, the minister, and, and I fell for the minister, because he was feeling pressured on both sides. He had the younger generation who wanted to do all these things. He had the older generation who wanted to retain the old things. 
And so oftentimes the minister didn't go far enough to keep the younger. He went too far to, lose, to keep the older. And the church had to fold. And that's why our little fellowship folded. I used to always tell them and urge my own men back home, why not just stick to the old paths? Why not just stick to that which is written? Brother, what else is there? We teach the Bible and we try to love people. That's Acts 2 and 42. Not just teaching the Bible. It's not just loving people. It's, it's teaching the Bible and trying to organize the church as best we can according to that which is written, which includes fellowship, loving people, and as we're going to see tonight, intimate fellowship and loving people. What else is there? If we kept reading down in chapter 3, you know the story of the miracle of the lame man. Silver or gold, we have not. We don't have anything else in Heritage RBC. That's it. I mentioned that I went down, was sent down there in 03. That's 19 years. And over the 19 years, I've probably received a couple dozen or more phone calls from people asking about the church. Brethren, I don't recall, and maybe I'm mistaken, and hopefully I am, but I don't recall out of all of those dozens of conversations, anybody ever asking us, do you guys continually devote yourself to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the sacraments, and to corporate prayer? But these are the priorities. These are the priorities. Well, what about evangelism? Well, evangelism, evangelism is included in the apostolic doctrine, brethren, because a part of what we're being told from the Bible week in, week out is how to let and why to let your light shine. Verse 42 provides the priorities of the church. Verse 42, secondly, describes the purpose of the church or a primary purpose. Of course, the ultimate purpose is the glory of God. But another important purpose of the church or perhaps a means to that end is to gather for public worship and to be encouraged and strengthened by a believing, humble use of the public means of grace. You know, the Reformed tradition, we speak of means of grace. And we divide those up between the public, as we're seeing now, and then the private, as we see tonight. But just keep in mind that by means of grace, we mean those ordinances or ways Christ has ordained through which or whereby he communicates grace from himself to our needy souls. How do we get this grace? Through means. Now keep in mind, means are means, not ends. They're means to an end, and who's the end? Christ. How do we get that grace from Christ? 
Christ has ordained ways publicly and privately whereby or through which he, by his spirit, through his word, communicates grace to our hearts. And that's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, my son, therefore, be strong in the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. There's grace in Christ. There's an abundance of grace. The problem isn't that there's not enough grace. The problem is, is that we're not getting that grace through a humble, believing use of means. In our Sunday school class, one of the brothers or sisters quoted from Psalm 84. It's a wonderful psalm that, like many other psalms, extols the the benefits of public worship. We read in verse 7, they go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. When we gather as God's people in Zion, that's what we're doing right now. And as we're going through the activities, the elements of public worship, I trust, brethren, that God is bringing you from one degree of glory to the next or from one degree of strength to the other. He's giving you encouragement. He's giving you strength. Where has God promised to strengthen his people First and foremostly, in the public assembly on the Lord's day. Because why? The priorities that we're to do, the activities that we're to give priority to, are the means of grace, brethren. That's what we find here, don't we, in Acts 2. And then thirdly, verse 42 contains the privileges of the church. By this I mean... Those who repent, verse 38, and believe, verse 41, and are thusly baptized and added to the church, this is what you get. Brother, what a privilege it is to be a Christian and to be a part of a church that recognizes, not perfectly, but generally, what its primary Activities are to be, and purpose is to be. We're to be a place where we come and devote ourselves to these four things. And it's in a humble, believing use of those things that we meet with Jesus. And he communicates by his spirit strength to our needy hearts. And yeah, that encourages us, as we'll see again tonight, to go into the world and to let our light shine. And to live with that chief end in mind, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sinner friend, do you want these privileges? To have teachers who teach you and shepherds who oversee you? Brethren, fellowship, the sacraments, public prayers, and this is what you have to do to have those privileges. You have to repent and believe. Or to use the imagery that I've already been using, you have to receive the whole Christ as made known to you in the gospel with both hands of the heart. In closing and much quicker, it's attitude. Then fear, verse 43, came upon every soul 
And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now before I come to the first part, because that's what I'm upon, let me just say something very quickly about the second part and the apostolic miracles. Now throughout the book of Acts, we learn three things about miracles. One, well, I say the book of Acts, but the Bible as a whole, but particularly the book of Acts, they were open, obvious, and undeniable. Brethren, the, the miracles of the Bible were not, well, I knew somebody who once knew somebody who heard about someone who heard a story about another one who was healed. Remember what Jesus did in the, in the Gospels and what the apostles do in the book of Acts. They go into villages and heal everybody. The blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead walk. When was the last time you saw one of those miracles? Brother and I would ask, and I hope prudently, our charismatic friends, this question, where are your miracles? You see, the miracles of the Bible were beyond doubt. Secondly, they were done by the apostles and only a few associates. Uh, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's vindicating his apostleship. He says that, didn't I perform the miracles of an apostle? You see, in order to be an apostle, you perform miracles, or perhaps the other way around. If you were called to be an apostle, you were enabled to perform miracles. And thirdly, they were intended to verify the word of God as being from God. And that's why if we took the time and looked through the book of Acts, we find that preaching and miracles go hand in hand. Until the completion of the canon, brethren, this is what the church has believed. Largely speaking, for a long time, God vindicated or verified the word with miracles. Now, if you go back to the very first sign and wonder, where was that? That was in the book of Acts with Moses. Remember, Moses says, you want me to go to to uh, Pharaoh and, and speak the word of God to him? What if he doesn't believe what I'm saying? What if the people, the Hebrews, don't believe that I'm sent from you? Well, he says here are two miracles to perform to prove you are sent from God. And remember the ending of Mark. It says that he sent them out and they performed miracles and Christ was verifying their words with accompanying signs. So, brethren, again, it goes back to my introduction. We're not, as Christians, as Reformed Christians, we're not afraid of the book of Acts. We understand the, the miracles, and we affirm the miracles. We just understand that the miracles were undeniable, and they were apostolic, and they were temporary. Now, that brings me then in closing to this first part. Then fear came upon every soul. Well, you know that the word fear is a good fear. And it refers to the heartfelt awe or reverence. And I take the phrase in uh, verse 43, then fear came upon every one of them to refer primarily to those newly baptized disciples. 
Now, I know that there are some commentators, and I'm trying to think of one, I can't off the top of my head, but some good commentators who take the phrase in verse 43a to refer to a generic fear that fell upon the non-believers. But if we were to take the time, and let me just show you very quickly, look at chapter 5 and verse 11, we're going to see that there's really little doubt that, the, that, that those upon whom fear came in our text were believers, Acts 5 and 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon those who heard. Chapter 9 and verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified in walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. And then you can go to chapter 19 and 17. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord was magnified. Now, brethren, we know, and even there in that text I was referencing in uh, 931, you have fearing God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit coupled together. And if we go back to Acts 2, we have joy, at least implied, in verse 41. They gladly received the word, and we're going to see it expressly down in verse 46. They ate their food with gladness. So at first, whatever is meant by this fear here, it's not in any way opposed to gladness. You know that you can find throughout the book of Acts and the Bible, but particularly the book of Acts, both of them underscored joy, gladness, fear, and or reverence. But it simply means, I think, that they devoted themselves to the things mentioned in verse 42 with a holy fear, with a holy reverence. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the sacraments, and the prayers, all in the fear of the Lord. And again, it's not in any way to devalue or to minimize joy and gladness. Brethren, in fact, if we go to the Psalms, we're going to find over and again these two things, these two attitudes, wed together with reference to public worship. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by those all around him. And how many times are we to sing with joy and gladness in our heart? For sure, brethren, they go together. I was so appreciative of Pastor Rick's prayer in the library before we came out. Oh, Lord, help us to worship you in a way that's fitting your name. Yes, with gladness and joy, but with holy, with holy fear and reverence. I think the best way to define this, what we might call Christian fear or gospel fear, to use Jeremiah Burroughs' phrase, is by appealing to several texts in the, in the, in the Proverbs and in the Psalms. Let me just give you one sample here. Proverbs 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now stop and think, brethren, for a second. You know that in the Psalms and in the the Hebrew poetry in general, but in Psalms and in Proverbs especially, you have parallel statements. Right? So there's something stated, and then it's stated in a different way, but it means the same thing. Notice what's synonymous with fearing God in this, in this text. 
God is greatly to be feared in the assembly. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now notice the synonym. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fearing God and knowing God are the same things. Knowledge of the Holy One, that's what it means to fear God. It means you know God. You know God in the totality of his divine perfections. In fact, we could even say it's taking the whole character of God and bringing it to bear upon my soul as a saved sinner. It's knowing God in the totality of his divine perfections in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. My friends, when we do that, and we know that, I assure you this, we will do regularly, continually, not perfectly, the activities mentioned in verse 42 in and with the attitude mentioned in 43. So is religion just a one day of a week thing? Oh, far from it, brethren. And we're going to see that, God willing, as we come to verses 44 to 47 tonight. Let us pray. Our Father, we bless you and thank you for your holy word. And oh, we pray you, our Father, that you would give us this joy, this comfort, this peace, and this gospel fear and trembling. That we might be committed, devoted to these things that we might give ourselves continually to the apostolic doctrine, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Now we pray you, Father, that you bless this ordinance. May it be as it's intended to be, a table of remembrance, a means of grace. Make it so, Father, we pray you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.